the church into this building, particularly on this bookended holiday Sunday. I think we have a couple of these, this one and next Sunday, surrounding 4th of July. You never know what might happen on a weekend like this. So good to see all of your faces in here. Uh, We're going to continue to dive into, work our way through the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. If you're new, yes, you heard me rightly. We are working through a book of the Bible that a lot of people, a lot of churches don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole because of its complexity. Uh, It's oftentimes criticized. It's a confusing book of the Bible, and we're going to get after it. Um, It's a book that that there are a number of people who uh, wonder, why is this book even in the canon of Scripture? Why are there not 65 books? How did this one make it in to, to lead to a total of 66 books that make up the Bible. Not only is this book itself filled with what appears to be contradictory messages, but the author of Ecclesiastes appears to contradict other parts of the scripture in his writing. And then, and then there's the question of whether or not the author is, is crossing a line, moving into to the realm of an unhealthy sort of pessimism, a skeptic and critic of God and his world. Which begs the question, why study such a book, particularly when you haven't worked your way as a church through the other 65? Why not play it safe? To which from the the very beginning of this series, I've offered five answers to that question. And I wanna come back to those just in case there are any in in this space this morning who who might be skeptical of whether or not you should press into this. For one, it's honest. It's a helpful resource for those of us who have been preconditioned to hide our tears and shame to leave our deepest questions at the front door, so to speak. The the author of Ecclesiastes, if you've been around from the beginning, you know he'll have none of that. The book of Ecclesiastes captures the frustration of living in a fallen, broken world, arguably better than any other book of the Bible. Secondly, it's course shaping, meaning that it has the power to change the very trajectory of our lives, giving us a window into the futility of a life lived in the pursuit of meaning apart from God so that we might not make the same mistake ourselves. Thirdly, it's apologetic, meaning that it presents some of the most challenging questions of human existence. Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Why does happiness seem to be so elusive, just beyond our reach? The author of Ecclesiastes is not afraid to wrestle with those kind of questions, helping us to see just how incredibly unromantic and irrational it is to consider life apart from God. Fourthly, It's doxological, meaning that it helps us to worship the one true God who reigns above the sun, the only one with all of the power and all of the answers. And then lastly, it's practical, teaching us how to view and approach things that are part and parcel to everyday life. Things like work, relationships, money, and even death, proving it to be a book that's not only timeless, but timely. As the Apostle Paul once said, 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Ecclesiastes is really a gift of God's grace, breathed out by God, profitable to God's people in its timelessness and its timeliness, which I hope compels you to join us for this journey if you're new to us this morning or to continue on the journey if you've been along for the ride thus far and are hanging on for dear life in this sea of pessimism, all right? If you have a Bible, you can open up to Ecclesiastes chapter five. We'll be in the first seven verses this morning. I think this is the shortest passage of scripture that we've covered as a church maybe in over a year. Um, So uh, you can go ahead and get on your 
iPhone app or your Android app and make your brunch reservations because it might actually happen this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can reach under one of the seats in front of you. There should be a Bible nearby. You can open up to this morning's passage using that Bible, and you can take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you if you don't own a Bible or the translation that you have in your possession is a little bit difficult to, to track with. Let me pray for us, and, and we'll dive in, and we'll, we'll get after it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus taught us to begin praying like that, to declare that you are holy, you are holy other, you are transcendent, you are so far above us, God. And yet, as we'll see in this morning's passage, you have established a way for us to not only approach you, but to approach you confidently. God, I pray this morning as we leave this place just a little while from now that in, in the, the nature of, of what it is to, to live the human experience, things oftentimes becoming rote, we forget, we, we lose our sense of wonder. I pray that we would walk out of this place this morning a bit awestruck and overwhelmed by the fact that we can approach your throne of grace and not cautiously, but rather confidently because of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. God, thank you for the gift of approachability that the gospel affords us. I pray that we would not take that for granted, that we would not take that lightly. Spirit of God, I pray that you would move in these moments to come as we open up the scriptures together, that you would help us to, to see and to hear and to receive that which you have for us. Holy Spirit, apart from your ministering work to us, in these moments to come, we will walk away unchanged. So I pray that you would work mightily in our midst and that we would walk away awestruck, that we would walk away a bit overwhelmed by who you are, God, and what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. All right, so let me, let me start with a little bit of, of framing here because the book of Ecclesiastes is, is challenging enough on its own we, we've had new faces show up in this auditorium each and every week of this series, and, and I don't want to take anything for granted. So just a little bit of framing so that we're all on the same page as we dive into chapter five this morning. We're almost to the halfway point at this point in the series. I, I mentioned last week that the book of Ecclesiastes begins with both a statement and a question. Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse two, the author declares, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity shows up more than 30 times throughout this book of the Bible, a word that, that literally means vapor or mist, like a breath on a, on a cold day disappearing as it leaves a person's lips or smoke rising from a fire and disappearing into the night sky. It can mean a few things. It can mean life is elusive on the one hand, unable to be grasped in its mystery and uh, incomprehensibility so that we're left wondering, trying to understand why things play out the way that they do. It, it can mean that life is momentary, here today, gone tomorrow, that James 4.14 kind of language, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It, it can also mean life is futile, a never ultimately and truly satisfying chasing after the wind, so to speak. 
Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The author of Ecclesiastes leads out with that statement, declaring this book to be the hopefully optimistic summer bee tree that, that all of you guys have been waiting for. And, and then he proceeds to follow his incredibly pessimistic introduction with a question, one that he's gonna spend much of the book grappling with. Chapter one, verse three, he asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It's, as I've said from the beginning of the series, a first-rate use of the Socratic method. The author presenting the reader with questions meant to scrutinize his or her commonly held beliefs, pushing us to, to really look at and ask the question why about everything that we believe and everything that we do. The author of Ecclesiastes asks, what is the return on investment? What does it profit a, a person to toil under the sun? As I mentioned, each and every week of this series, that phrase, under the sun, has everything to do with unlocking the meaning of the book, and it can mean a number of things. It shows up just as many times as the word vanity, roughly 30 times throughout the book, and it's super complex in, in understanding what it means. It can mean life as we know it in a fallen world, surrounded by everything that makes this world sad in light of sin's curse. It can mean a, a view of the world absent of God, not thinking as though God is really there, that he's a part of this whole thing, that life is nothing more than a, a non-theistic accident as opposed to a meaningful story that God is writing, that there is nothing above the sun. It can mean a, a belief in God, but one that falls short of the fullness of who God is so that you don't see any sort of father's, fatherhood and sonship language in the book of Ecclesiastes. No, no unpacking of this idea that, that God is a loving father and, and we could be his beloved children. No uh, unpacking or uh, declaration of a coming Messiah who will rescue his people from life under the sun. This, this hopeless endeavor of human existence in this world as we know it. The, even the, we'll see this this morning, the language of fearing God in the book of Ecclesiastes falls short of the language of fear of the Lord outside of the book because the author doesn't use the, the name for God that would associate God with, with his intimate covenant-keeping, covenant-relating um, relationship with his people. It can mean, under the sun, a right confessional belief in God intermingled with a life of hypocrisy, living only for the now and the supremacy of self while professing a belief in eternity and the supremacy of Christ. And then lastly, it can mean a limited perspective on life compared to God's comprehensive, all-knowing view of the world. This frustration with wanting all the answers and yet knowing that God has chosen not to share his divine attribute of omniscience, of all-knowingness with us. Each and every one of those various ways of contemplating life under the sun shows up at some point in the book. What does man gain by all of his toil at which he toils under the sun, he asks, having looked at the, the endless cycles of nature, the world running in, in circles without any sort of true progress or sense of direction, along with the reality that generations come, generations go, most of us likely to be forgotten when all is said and done, having ventured on a personal quest to find happiness and meaning by way of wisdom and pleasure and achievement, among other things, the author comes up not only empty-handed, but despairing of life, giving his heart up to despair, forced to admit that the seasons that, that we go through as human beings in life are not ultimately in our hands, frustrated by his limited understanding of God's activity in the world. Going back to last week, acknowledging the, the benefit of companionship as opposed to living life in isolation, yet declaring the hopelessness of trying to find it in a world in which wickedness pervades society. 
Up to this point, the, the book of Ecclesiastes has been filled with questions, it's been filled with observations, it's been filled with resigned conclusions in light of the search. It's here in chapter five that, that the author steps into some unique waters, bringing commands into the picture for the very first time in the book. Commands that have to do with the author's understanding of how uh, one should approach God in worship. Commands that, as we'll see, don't exactly inspire confidence. Look at chapter five, verses one through three. It says, the author speaking, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, but for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a, fuel, a fool's voice with, with many words. Going back to chapter three, I believe we hit on this last week, verse 16 of chapter three, the author says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. That wickedness is pervasive in this fallen, broken world. Even in the place of justice, the courts of law, it's there. Even in the place of righteousness, the houses of worship, it's there too. Here in chapter five, the author zooms in on the second of those two places, the temple of God, and he begins with a command, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. He says, be cautious in your approach. There are many in the midst of the assembly of God's people who have no idea, he says, that they are doing evil, blind to their own hypocrisy, full of words, but with hearts that are far from God, going through the hollow, empty ritual of it all, which is why we find among the, the prophets of the Old Testament passages like these, Isaiah 29, verses 13 and 14 say, say this, and the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. That, that God is not impressed with religious hypocrisy. He never has been. People who honor him with their lips, but whose hearts are, are far from them. Jesus made that crystal clear on a number of occasions throughout the course of his public ministry. According to the author of Ecclesiastes, there, there's something incredibly dangerous about being quick to speak in the presence of the divine and being rash with one's mouth and being hasty to utter a word before God. Better to listen, he says. Better to let your words be few. The reason for caution, he argues, is that God is in heaven and man is on earth. Not only distant, but, but incomprehensible. He's eternal. We're, we're mortal. He's all-knowing. We're, we're limited in our understanding. He's all-powerful. We're helplessly dependent creatures. Looking at verse 3, he says, For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Meaning, one of two things. Either that dreaming and toil go hand in hand, that with much toil comes a hard night's sleep and, and many dreams, and then in the same regard, a, a fool's voice and many words go hand in hand. As hard workers dream, so fools talk a lot. Um, the other possibility is that a dream leads to much business, a toiling to see the dream realized, but, but dreams are just that, dreams. Same thing with a fool's voice. It leads to many words, a toiling of the tongue that doesn't produce anything of substance in the end. 
It's an overworking in, in either case, an overworking of the hands in toil, an overworking of the mouth in speech. He goes on to say in verse four, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Here the author speaks of the danger of of unfulfilled vows made to God. A second point of focus in approaching God with caution. You get a number of examples of vows in the Bible. You, you, you see it uh, in Jacob fleeing from his brother Esau in Genesis chapter 28. We see Hannah crying out to the Lord in her barrenness in 1 Samuel chapter 1, making a vow to the Lord. Jonah sinking to the bottom of the sea, Jonah chapter 2 verse 9, crying out to the Lord. You see it over and over again throughout the course of Scripture. And the, and the idea is this. If God were to, to deliver the one making the vow... The expectation was that the person would fulfill the vow in one of two ways, either by going to the temple and offering a sacrifice or by making good on a particular promise made to God. And if that person didn't make good on that vow, then the religious mafia would show up, basically. A messenger from the temple would come and make sure that you made good on that vow. That's what uh, uh, verse 6 is talking about. Don't say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Oh, I didn't mean to make that vow. That won't go well for you. There seems to be a, a reference to the book of Deuteronomy here. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 through 23 sound very similar to the uh, verses 4 through 7 of this morning's passage where it says this, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. That in both Deuteronomy and Ecclesiastes, it's a serious thing to make a vow to God and, and then to not fulfill that vow. A surefire way to bring destruction upon oneself, whether in this life or the final judgment or both. It's vanity to see one's Increased dreams, verse 7, lead to increased empty promises to God. But God, he says, at the end of verse 7, the end of this morning's passage, is the one you must fear. The end, on to the next section of the book. Like, one of the shorter subsections in all of Ecclesiastes, right? We finally got to God. Seven verses, he's done. And as we'll see, on to more sadness and pessimism in, in the remainder of the book to come. Like, what, what is he doing here? What is the author of Ecclesiastes doing in these seven verses? What is he trying to communicate in this brief little subsection of this book of the Bible? Some see it as a positive call to worship, a, a call going back to last week to companionship with God in the midst of the loneliness and injustice, and yet, with a few rules in place, let's not do this with a foolish tongue, so that if you read a number of scholars and commentators, they would, they would make the connection and say that listening rather than speaking means that the preached word of God, the pulpit ministry of the church is important to God's people as we gather. And, and that speaking few words has to do with how we should pray when we come together in the assembly of God's people. When, when words leave our lips as we gather, those would be the, the connecting points if you take that um, understanding 
in, in terms of interpretation of these seven verses. And, and if that's where you land, you would actually be in the company of a number of scholars and commentators there. However, I'm not convinced, and I haven't been from the very beginning of this book, that that's the case. And, and if you agree with me there, you would also be in, in good company with a number of scholars and commentators. That, that There are a number of reasons to think otherwise, to conclude that this is not some hopeful call to worship, that all of a sudden in the midst of, of all the pessimism, he, he gives us a blueprint for how to gather as God's people and then jumps back into pessimistic waters, but rather to see this as a continuation of what the author's been saying from the very beginning of the book. Namely, that life under the sun is vanity, and that includes an under the sun approach to God. I'll give you a few reasons for why that might be true in understanding these seven verses. Number one, everything surrounding these verses has to do with unmet expectations. Regarding toil in chapter four, verses seven through 12. Unmet expectations regarding political power, chapter four, verses one through three, as well as chapter four, verses 13 through 16. The next two verses we'll see as we dive in next week, chapter five, verses eight and nine, get after some of those unmet expectations regarding political power as well. And then you have unmet expectations regarding wealth, chapter five, verse 10 through chapter six, verse nine, much of next week's passage that we're gonna dive into. So that perhaps this morning's passage is no different having to do with unmet expectations in regards to the approachability of God. Second reason to, to perhaps argue this understanding of these verses is that there doesn't seem to be any passion in the author's writing, does there? Very different from the intensity of emotions found in the Psalms. A tame tongue, yes and amen, a, a certain sign of wisdom, but a person should also be able to pour their heart out to the living God. Right, you see uh, this kind of language in Psalm 62, verse 8, where we're told uh, by the psalmist, Trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Right, that, that, that kind of language is, is filled with emotion. Right? The very psalms themselves are filled with the full range of emotions in relating to the living God, capturing the fullness of the human condition and experience. If you've read the psalms, you know that to be true, the highest of highs emotionally and the lowest of lows and everything in between. But not Ecclesiastes. The author of Ecclesiastes is emotionally reserved and cautiously trepid, sensing the distance of God, the unpredictability of God, the holy otherness of God. Another reason to argue this way is that, and I've said this in previous weeks of this series, the author uses the name Elohim in reference to God rather than Yahweh. Elohim being the more general name for God used in Genesis 1 in the cosmic level telling of the story of creation. Yahweh being God's name in relation to his covenant people used in Genesis 2 as the creation story zooms in on God's relationship with his image bearers in the garden. It's the name Yahweh that, that emphasizes God's covenant faithfulness, his commitment to fighting for his people, a name that the author of Ecclesiastes never uses in reference to God, which is why some scholars argue that fearing God in Ecclesiastes is not the same as the fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs. That the fear of Yahweh in Proverbs is, is that of deep reverence, deep awe in relation to God as his covenant people. Um, Proverbs chapter uh, 46 verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 14 verse 26 says, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have refuge. 
There's no confidence in the seven verses that make up this morning's passage. And there's only caution, emphasized all the more by the way the very passage itself is framed, beginning with the word guard, ending with the word fear. That fearing God, verse 7, and guarding your steps, verse 1, are two ways of saying the same thing. Two bookends holding these seven verses together. In the book of Ecclesiastes, God is distant. God is unpredictable. Watch your step, is what the author seems to be saying. Which begs the question, and it's been the question we've asked every single week of this series, is that really the best we can hope for? Is that really the best? And the answer is, if it's up to us, yep, it's the best we can hope for. If we leave the book of Ecclesiastes, the commands not only increase in number, but in complexity. There are hundreds of them, revealing that that we can't possibly bridge the gap between God and ourselves. In the Old Testament, many of you are familiar with this. The tabernacle and temple had not only an outer court, but also the holy place within the temple, and then the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, those different areas representing um, different degrees of holiness in approaching God. So that only ceremonially clean Israelites could enter the outer court, and only the priests could enter the holy place, and only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and even that had stipulations attached. That the Holy of Holies was such sacred ground that bells were sewn to the high priest's robe so that the people outside would hear him moving and know that he hadn't been struck dead by God. Hey, you talk about entering God's presence with trepidation, there you have it. The problem is not only that God's in heaven and that we're on earth. The author alluded to this last week. It's that God is perfectly holy and we're imperfectly sinful. That wickedness pervades society. Going back to last week, we're all animalistic sinners. We live in a world filled with people who use their power to oppress other people. A world filled with people working their fingers to the bone to fulfill the covetous desires of their hearts. A world filled with Foolish people who sit on their hands in idleness. A world filled with people too proud to take advice. That none of us is is capable, you might say, of crossing enough moral T's and dotting enough moral I's to merit God's favor. To expect anything more than distance, unpredictability, and certain judgment. Which is why it's such glorious news that that's not the only thing you see when you leave the book of Ecclesiastes. Right? When we step outside the bounds of the book, we most certainly see our inability to approach God on the basis of our own merits with anything but trepidation. But we also see in the person of Jesus Christ, one who has done what we could never do. Right? We talked about this back in the Hebrews series. When the veil, the curtain of the tabernacle was created, separating the holy place from the holy of holies, Cherubim were embroidered as a visual reminder that the Israelites couldn't enter because of their sin. They pointed all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3, a reminder of what happened in the wake of sin's curse, where cherubim were set at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, guarding it with swords so that Adam and Eve couldn't gain re-entrance into the garden. When Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn and the cherubim were taken away, an inapproachable Uh, innermost room of the temple now visible for everybody within eyeshot to see. Can you imagine that? If you were around when Jesus died on the cross and all of a sudden that room that the high priest had to enter in with bells sewn to his robe uh, in order to to even 
gain entrance so that people would know whether he was alive or dead. Now all of a sudden you could see the, the components of that room. You could see everything there was to see within that innermost sanctuary of God's temple. Mind-blowing. The glorious declaration that Jesus is in fact the way back into the presence of God. That he fulfilled the, the perfect sinless life that we could never live living the law perfectly on our behalf, no trace of hypocrisy to be found in Jesus. His lips and his heart were always one and the same. He, not only that, he died the sinner's death that you and I deserve to die, bearing the sins of our blind hypocrisy and empty promises in his body on the tree. If you're like me, this is the point you go, hallelujah, praise Jesus. If you're not a Christian, my prayer is pretty simple this morning. As you look at this short passage, it's that you would see that fearful caution is the best that a person can hope for in approaching God on the basis of his or her own merits. Guard your steps. Walk in with fearful trepidation into the presence of God. It's not gonna go well for you. But that you would see that in, in the face of Jesus Christ, there's something better, there's something more hopeful. That those who are united to him by faith don't have to stand at the outer edges of the courtyard. That's as far as you and I could possibly get without Jesus. But with Jesus, we're told that we can confidently draw near to God by grace, through faith, in his finished priestly work. James referenced Hebrews earlier. I'll reference another part of Hebrews, chapter four, verses 15 and 16, very famous passage. The author of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, we can confidently approach the throne of divine mercy and grace. I love the way one of my old professors, Richard Belcher in his commentary on Ecclesiastes puts it. He says this, he says, God is not a distant God because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. It is because of the work of Jesus that a person never has to worry whether God has their best interests in view. God has demonstrated that he is on our side by sending his son to deliver us from our sin. Jesus' work ensures, he says, that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's a reference to Romans 8 there. He closes the quote by saying, thus we do not draw near cautiously, but boldly to the throne of grace. Does anyone in this space this morning need to be reminded that God is not distant? Anybody? Anyone need to be reminded this morning that God truly does have your best interests in view? Anyone need to be reminded this morning that nothing can ever separate you from the love of God? And I think many of us would say, yes, yes, and yes. Most days need to be reminded of those things. When you leave the book of Ecclesiastes, what you find is that you have to look no further than Jesus Christ, that he's our reminder. We sing it all the time around here. We just sang it a few minutes ago. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. 
My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. That by the blood of Jesus, we can confidently approach the throne of the living God. Like, it it would be sufficient enough just to simply walk away, awestruck by the fact that you can approach God even with caution. To, To walk away and go, He's approachable. Like he's made himself approachable even if I do have to walk on eggshells on my way in his direction. And yet that's not what the Bible says. That for those who are in Christ Jesus, we should be awestruck on two different levels. One, that that God has been made available to us in terms of approachability, but even more than that, that, that we're able to approach him confidently, boldly, not cautiously. That this is a God who welcomes us to come to him. That, that you see this both and in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia. Yes, he's the, the fearsome lion who growls. And when he growls, everyone comes to silence and stillness. And yet if you've read those stories, you also know that he's the lion who welcomes you to jump on his back and go for the greatest ride the world's ever known. That's our God. Fearsome and yet approachable with confidence and boldness. It's unbelievable. It really is. And it's that kind of grace, when, when you grasp it, when you get out of the, the rote nature of, of everyday life and you pause for a second and you acknowledge just long enough what Christ has accomplished for you, it's that kind of grace that fans into flame true fear of the Lord, deep reverence and awe, love and humility leading to obedience knowing that the the lamb who was slain is also the great line of Judah. He's both and. Not only a merciful savior, but a glorious king worthy of bending our knee in glad submission. A king whose throne, we who are united to him by faith, will surround someday, not in fearful trepidation, think about that, but in overwhelming gratitude and joy forever and ever and ever. In a moment, We're going to practice that. We're going to practice for eternity together. We're going to approach God. And and my hope is that you would would stop for a second and acknowledge the wonder of what's before you in in the remaining aspects of our time together as as the gathering of God's people. That you would pause and just stop for a minute uh, in preparing to receive communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing Jesus' broken body, the cup representing his shed blood, to, to pause for a second and, and to connect the dots and think about the fact that without Jesus' broken body and shed blood, we wouldn't sing like we do in this place. So that the next few songs that we sing as we prepare to leave this place we can only do with confidence because of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. I hope you remember that as you come and receive communion this morning. I hope you remember that you can't go to the back of our auditorium and pray uh, with someone, have someone lift you up to the Lord, pray for you, with you, uh, as, as it pertains to our prayer team. You couldn't do that with anything more than guarded steps and fearful trepidation were it not for the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That, that many of the, the natural things that we do when we gather as God's people is only doable, only sensible because of the blood of Christ, because of the broken body of Christ. I hope that that you pause just long enough before you come and receive communion to, to ponder that and to say, thank you, God, that my experience with you is not some bookended guard your steps and fear God with, with nothing more than trepidation.
but that I can approach the throne of grace and find mercy and help in time of need because of Jesus.